Our Lord, we now gather as your people to hear you speak to us through your word. We pray that by your spirit in that word we hear audibly with our physical ears, we would hear your voice with those spiritual ears where we as your sheep hear and follow, where we as your redeemed hear and worship, where we obey and seek to serve you, our great and our awesome God and our King and our Lord. We do ask that your word would be spoken rightly, for it is only in rightly dividing your word that your voice can be heard. And so for that, I ask assistance. And yet, we all need that assistance to have it seep into our heart, and that's what we ask you to do. And we pray these things in your most matchless name. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 36. As we complete our look this morning at this final woe of Jesus in this chapter. Now, we noted last week the entire religious system of these teachers opposed and blinded the mind of others and hardened the hearts of others to the truth of the reality of the kingdom of God. And it is for that that Jesus condemns them. It is for that that Jesus brings such a strong word on these leaders. We noted also that Jesus' description of the kingdom of righteousness in the sermon was a radical contrast to all that these leaders taught to all that they taught that had created this religious system in which Jesus entered into to reveal the truth of the kingdom of God. These leaders, as well as the people under their tutelage, were in bondage to a blinding system of religious tradition and externalism that effectively shut them off from God's salvation and from God's grace, from God's kingdom, from His salvation. And it is... Tragic. It's tragic in a unique way as we see what is happening to these leaders, how they responded to Jesus, but it's always tragic when we see God's salvation and His grace rejected because it is a glorious salvation. It is a wonderful and a marvelous salvation. It is an incredible grace that God extends to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Christ had come Their God had come to them for their salvation. As God has come to us, He's come to our world, He's come to our nation, He's come to our community, and He has offered Himself. He's offering forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, eternal fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Indeed, He is the light of the world and the Savior of sinners. And yet, as we know that most of the world will reject Him, and it is in this rejection that the darkness of man's heart is most revealed. And the spiritual blindness of the world is shown to be what it is in her rejection of her God. Unbelief is a fruit of our depravity, of our sin. And that is indeed revealed before us. However, at this point, as Jesus is rebuking them specifically for their murderous deeds that are in line with those who have gone before them, they could possibly have counterattacked in their mind or refuted his charge against them with the fact that they had not committed these deeds. They had, at this point, yet 
to murder a prophet, as he charged them with. But it is coming. It is coming. They would commit this heinous deed. And it is by their deeds and all of those who follow in their line of persecuting the righteous that God's judgment is vindicated. And that really is his point. So let's read again, beginning in verse 29, down to verse 36 of Matthew 23. And then we'll look at it more closely. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now go back up to verse 29 and let's be reminded of what we covered last week. And we noted first in verses 29 through 33 that false associations cannot hide guilt nor protect from judgment. False associations cannot hide guilt nor protect from judgment. So Jesus is essentially condemning these leaders for seeking to win the favor of the people and to build their prestige and boost their image of righteousness and dedication to God by aligning themselves with righteous people of the past, righteous prophets and servants of God in the past. While they are in fact guilty of the very murderers, or the same murder that they're trying to distance themselves from. And so in making these strong attestations to their being in the line of the righteousness, righteous of the past, they are committing two grievous errors that Jesus is going to point out. First, they show themselves to be, as Jesus said, sons of those who murdered the prophets. They are sons by physical lineage and they are sons by spiritual lineage. They are offspring of the devil, as those were in the past, who opposed God's righteous ones. And Jesus brings that out then in the statement when he calls them snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? How will you escape the same judgment of those wicked who have gone before you and committed such heinous deeds against God and against God's people? And we noted here then that this is the judgment that was reserved for their true spiritual father, Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning. He said in Matthew 25, 41, hell was created for Satan and his devils and then also for those who are of the same nature and follow in his ways. Secondly, then, we notice this. They manifest their complete understanding of what righteousness and wickedness looks like. They understood clearly what those who are righteous look like and what those who are wicked look like and what they do. They were exactly right 
in history in saying these are the righteous ones and these are the wicked ones. The problem lied in the fact that though they could discern that in the past, they were unable to discern that in the present, and more importantly, they were unable to discern that in their own hearts. Now, Calvin captures this irony well. And here he's making a, comparing, a comparison of this same sin to the error of the Roman Catholicism of his day and their persecution of the righteous. And his indictment stands. Listen as I read. He says, quote, Not satisfied with paying just veneration to apostles and martyrs, they render to them divine worship and think that they cannot go too far in the honors which they heap upon them. And yet, by their rage against believers, they show what sort of respect they would have manifested towards apostles and martyrs if they had been still alive to discharge the same office which they anciently held. Let them adorn the images of the saints as they may think fit by perfumes, candles, flowers, and every sort of gaudy ornament. If Peter were now alive, they would tear him to pieces. They would stone Paul, and if Christ himself were still in the world, they would burn him with a slow fire, end quote. And that by the religious establishment. And it is no different today. It is no different today to those who hold to a form of religion but have denied its power, which is precisely what they had done and what Paul warns in 2 Timothy 3 will be the case at the end of the age and now is. Indeed, it's very similar to what Jesus said in John 16, 2, when he said, An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. No doubt, some of these leaders were doing this in a very self-conscious awareness of the duplicity of their hearts. Others were doing it thinking it to be sincere devotion to God, not unlike a pre-converted Paul. And this again has happened throughout the history of the church. Professing Christians have killed genuine Christians. We think of Huss and Tyndale and many others. And yet, this is within the sovereign plan of God. There is a determined amount of wickedness to be executed against the righteous that God has determined. And so he said that to them. That you need to fill up the measure. The idea here is the guilt and the sin of your fathers. In other words, they have more wickedness to do. And as we noted last week, the church has more suffering at their hands to endure, as modeled by Paul in Colossians 1.24. And of course, the climactic brunt of what Jesus is condemning here would be endured by himself at their hands, as he would go to the cross as both an atonement for sin and an example for his people. And indeed, it is their very acts of violence against the righteous one and his righteous ones that this undeniable proof of their wickedness for which Jesus condemns them here would vindicate the righteous judgment of God that is coming both in hell and in the temporal judgments that are coming upon the nation in just a few years from these words. We noted secondly then in verses 34 through 36, that Christ vindicates his judgment by giving his servants to be killed. Christ vindicates his judgment by giving his servants to be killed. In other words, Christ sends his servants to an unrighteous people. He does that. Look at verse 34. Behold, 
Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And that, therefore, is significant. It's significant. Because they are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And it is because that's who they are that he is sending them prophets and wise men and scribes. He knows to whom he is sending his people and he knows he's sending them to murderers. And therefore they will be murdered by them. He knows that. He knows that. He knows that's where he's going. And he knows that's where his servants must follow. And he knows what the consequences are going to be. Namely, that the unrighteous will kill his people, which is just what their fathers did. And of course, this persecution is something that Jesus reminded his people of over and over and over again. We won't walk through all of those verses. But there are five points. There are five important points for us to draw out of verse 35 before we move on. I mentioned the first couple of these last week. We'll finish them this morning. The first is this, that this is something we want to notice. It is an explicit statement of the deity of Christ. He says, I am sending you prophets. It's inferred, yes, but it's implicit. Only God sends prophets. The prophets are God's prophets with God's message. And here Christ is sending His prophets with His message because He acts in the authority of of his father. Notice secondly that Jesus sends his people to dangerous places where they will be persecuted or killed. We looked again at this last week. We noted Ezekiel and God called Ezekiel out in chapter 2 and he said, Ezekiel, I am sending you to a rebellious people. And you know what? I'm going to make your heart hard because it needs to be hard, that is resilient against the suffering and the opposition that's going to come against you because I have a message to deliver to them. You are going to suffer for that message, but I will strengthen you for your suffering. We notice that in other prophets, and Peter was going to go where he did not, or be led where he did not want to go. He was crucified upside down, as were, according to church history, all of the disciples or apostles except for John, who was banished to the island of Patmos. We said, Paul, Jesus warned him that he was going to suffer many things for the gospel and so on and so forth. But God's servants are willing to go. They're willing to go. And we have an abundance of illustrations of this in our own time. Let me just give you a few. If you were to go on Voice of the Martyrs, one of their first stories is this. Imagine living in such a constant state of fear that you're scared to even leave your house. That's the reality for a growing number of Egyptian Christians living in Libya. Ever since the Islamic State brutally murdered 21 Christians in January, Egyptian Christians have experienced an increase in threats, kidnappings, and murders. God sends His people to those murderers. He sends them to the nations that are under the murderous control of ISIS and other Muslim groups. There's another ministry called Frontline Ministries that I recently became aware of. They particularly send people to some of the dangerous areas with the gospel. This is one of the stories that they give. Somalia Somalia is not only one of the most corrupt countries on the planet, but it is also ranked as one of the worst persecutors of Christians, second only to North Korea. Officially, Somalia is 100% Sunni Muslim and is governed with harsh Shahara law. 
The accurate number of Christians is difficult to determine due to their very low profile. But estimates put the number of underground believers anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand. Last April, Al-Shahabab, or Al-Shabaab, Islamic extremists killed two Somalian members of parliament who voted to accept financial support from the West, which was called an invasion of Christians into Somalia. The month prior, Al-Shabaab extremists summoned a young Christian mother, Sadia Ali Amar, into the town square of Barara. They demanded to know why her attendance at Friday mosque prayers had stopped. Sadia was told to renounce Christ. And when she refused to do so, the extremists beheaded her in front of her daughters and the villagers. Please pray for the gospel's advance in Somalia and also for special grace and perseverance for Christians who often follow Jesus in isolation and are in great need of fellowship and discipleship. Of course, those things could go on and on and on. God sends his people to those places. He sends them to die. He sends them to murderers, knowing that some of them will be murdered for the sake of his name. And of course, Christ is the one who stands as the exemplar. He's the one who came to murderers. He'd already told his disciples back in 1621 that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then he said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. So Christ sends his people to be killed. He sends his people to dangerous places. Hudson Taylor said this. The missionary spirit is the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of the incarnation and the cross. The evidence of God's spirit in his people is that they go. They go. Number three. Notice this. That God works from an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. God works from an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. Our perspective is so often stuck in the here of now. We typically do not think eternally. We think very much attached to this world. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that God's ultimate purpose in our life is to make us comfortable and generally keep us from things going wrong. To keep us safe. To keep us happy, as if our greatest good rested in being safe and being earthly happy. That is not true. God often does bless us in the world and protect us from harm, and He's glorified by our humble gratitude for these things, but they are not His highest priority. His highest priority is our holiness, the glory of His name, and the spread of the gospel of Christ. And whatever consequences may come from serving Christ in this world cannot compare to the eternal reward that he has prepared for us so to those who may say or may wonder how could God send his people to be persecuted why in the world would God send his peoples to some place where they're going to die well let me give you at least two reasons one is this because that's how the gospel is proclaimed how are they going to get saved how will they hear unless they have a preacher that goes to them how will they hear unless the message comes and it comes by being spoken It comes by being preached. It comes by the word of God coming to them through a human instrument. How else are they going to be saved? God has elect among Muslims. Secondly, 
He sees the end, the glory. He knows what is happening here is temporary, that suffering is for a moment, but glory is forever. And mature Christians and maturing Christians understand this. Of course, we see this most clearly displayed in the Apostle himself. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, just listen, that he says we're inflicted, uh, verse 8, afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He says later, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So he could live that way. He could give his body over to be tortured, to be in prison, to be hungry and shipwrecked in the list we read last week. Why? Because he's looking to the reward. He was looking eternally. He was looking eternally. And he said the sufferings in Romans 8 that he endures here do, are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. It is having an eternal perspective. And that is the perspective God has. And that's what we need as his people to be faithful To be faithful to Him. We need to know the end is glory and be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. So how could Jesus send them? How could He send others? How could He send us to these kind of hard situations? Because He knows the end. He knows the end. He knows that you may suffer here. That's a reality. But the glory is eternal. And it cannot even be compared to the suffering here. Note fourthly. God has... An eternal perspective, not a temporal one. And fourthly, we can observe this, that God is absolutely sovereign over the suffering of His people. He's absolutely sovereign over the suffering of His people. Nothing touches God's people outside of His sovereign hand. The church, the suffering church, needs to understand this and we need to understand this. God withholds suffering to some and He brings it to others and He's sovereign over it all. We're reminded here then of the words of Daniel's friends They're renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before the fire. And they say, look, whether our God delivers us or whether he doesn't, we are not going to bow our knee to you, Nebuchadnezzar, so do what you will. We're going to entrust ourselves to the sovereign hand of our God. In that case, he did deliver them. In other cases, he did not deliver his people. But this is important to understand that we might have strength. Listen to what he says in chapter 2 of Revelation to a suffering church, the suffering church of Smyrna. He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Not nine, not eleven, ten days. Know this and therefore be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Hold on. God is sovereign in the end is glory. He says this in chapter 6 of Revelation. Just listen as I read. 
When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. In other words, wait. There's more to die. And I know who those are. And I know how many they are. And I know how they will die. But guess what? Hold on. Hold on. I'm sovereign over their suffering. Of course, Christ is the ultimate example of this. As he gave himself up to the sovereign plan of God as the incarnate son to be crucified as we just read. And he said to his disciples afterwards, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? How could he endure the shame of the cross? Because he knew the glory at the other end of it. And he knew God was sovereign. So God knows where he's sending, he knows what will happen, and he is control, and he will not allow it be, to be too much. He will not allow it to be more than his people can handle. And the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which relates to so many of our temptations and trials, holds here too. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested or pushed beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Suffering will come, but God is sovereign over it. The end is glory, and he will sustain his people in the midst of it. And we need to remember this, not only in such suffering as he lists here, but in every situation in which there may be a cost to pay for our witness, and we would be tempted to be silent, we would be tempted to not take the risk, we would be tempted to justify our closed mouths. We must not do that. We must speak in every opportunity that we have and leave the results to God. Let's note fifthly then, Fifthly, not only is God absolutely sovereign over the suffering of his people, God sends the gospel to secure judgment as well as accomplish salvation. God sends the gospel to secure judgment as well as to accomplish salvation. The reality is that the gospel hardens as well as it softens. It has been well noted that the same sun that melts the clay hardens the wax. The same sun that melts the clay hardens the wax. Jesus' statement shows us this. He says, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and you are going to kill them. I'm going to send you a message of grace and an offer of forgiveness, and you will reject him. So for these people then, knowingly and under the sovereign hand of God, the gospel will be not a means of salvation, but the gospel will be a means of vindicating his judgment against them. And this is by God's design. God sends the gospel to those whom he knows he will leave in their natural condition of rebellion. He knows that they will reject, and he knows that by that he vindicates his own judgment. Paul said, the apostle of grace, that wherever he goes, he's a fragrance of Christ. And wherever he goes, this fragrance of Christ is for some an aroma from life to life. 
And for others, what? An aroma of death to death. 2 Corinthians 2.16. He knows that. God knows what effect it will bring. And he has sovereignly ordained it. And this is not the first time, of course, that we encounter this. A passage often repeated in the Gospels, particularly in light of the nation's rejection of him, is Isaiah 6. Listen to what he says to Isaiah. God needs a servant to go to a rebellious people. And he says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. What is the effect of the ministry of Isaiah and the message of God to his people? It's this. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. How long is he to do this until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate? In other words, they're not going to listen to you, Isaiah, but I'm going to send you, and in their rejection, it's going to affirm my judgment that is determined and will come. Now, this is a difficult reality to grasp, but God has designed in the gospel both the good of bringing sinners to salvation to remove them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, and He also has designed in the gospel the rejection and the hardening of hearts of sinners so that the wickedness of man's heart could be fully manifested and revealed and His justice could be put on display. Listen to just a couple of more places here. Romans chapter 2, he says this. Do you think lightly of the riches of this kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God should lead you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Listen to these words you're familiar with. While explaining in chapters 9 through 11 why the nation is rejecting, how that fits into God's plan, and how God is just in everything that he executes. While at the very beginning of that discussion, exalting the sovereign hand of God and the sovereign decision of God in choosing Jacob over Esau, of choosing some for compassion and some for judgment, the apostle says this to the worried questioner, O man who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, How, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does, the potter, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath de- prepared for destruction? And he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. He says God endures with patience those who are going to be destroyed. But that reality then magnifies his grace to those who receive mercy. Now to those who find this unfair, to those who find this unfair, we must be reminded that every sinner's will is enslaved to sin. Every one of us in this room came into this world with a heart that was bent to rejecting Christ and would do so until the day of death unless God intervened. Because God is just, He reveals and requires from us obedience to His law and obedience even to the message of grace in Christ. However, 
man will not ultimately yield and obey because of the deceiving power of sin and its hold on the human heart. It is grace by which we are saved. It is grace. Those on whom God sets His eternal love, His eternal mercy, whom He brings to fellowship into His Son, whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world to remove the natural rebellion of our heart, to give a heart of flesh and to receive His Son Christ. It is against that act that the mercy and the grace of God is made known and manifest. And it is, as Paul said, to the praise of the glory of God of His grace and His grace alone. But those who reject that grace have only themselves to blame in their sinful refusal to humble themselves before God. Therefore, the rejection of the gospel is the proof, the evidence of our guilt and our wickedness. By rejecting the gospel, fallen man proves the rightness of God to bring judgment. He proves the reality of the sin of our heart. He proves that There is a hatred of righteousness that resides in every human being apart from the grace of God and it vindicates his judgment. Let's notice in the last point here, coming to the last point in verse 35. The righteous judgment of God then will come upon the guilty. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 35. Very important words. He says, so that... So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood that has been poured out upon the earth. That's an incredible statement. So that is a purpose statement. It gives the reason. This is why that's going to happen. I'm going to send you prophets, scribes, others. You're going to kill them. Why are you going to do that? So that the guilt of all those who have murdered the righteous will come upon you. That is a powerful, powerful condemnation. He's giving the reason here for ascending to prove their guilt. To prove their guilt. The very guilt that they are trying to distance themselves from is going to be proved by their actions against His righteous ones. The logic of the passage goes something like this. You acknowledge the wickedness of those who killed the prophets. By doing this, you prove your own guilt because you do the same thing. And to prove it, I'm going to send you prophets and others and you're going to persecute and kill them. And by doing this, you will demonstrate your own guilt and the justice of God in your judgment. That's the argument being made. That's the argument. And it is a complete guilt that they share. He says, look... The righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And this is devastating. Look at first there, he says the righteous blood of Abel. Notice what he says, he doesn't just say blood, he says it is the righteous blood. It is the righteous blood. Abel was righteous in God's eyes. He is one who had responded to God's word and his promise as he knew it and had received from God grace. It was the blood of one who walked with God, who believed God's testimony, whose life demonstrated the truth and the righteousness of the character of God, one in a right relationship. And he says, because of that, his blood was spilled. And Abel then stands as the first martyr on the pages of Scripture. The first martyr on the pages of Scripture. And murdered by his own brother who slew him in the field, who killed him in the field, even after God had warned him about the evil and the sin that was taking hold of his heart and the need to resist it. But he didn't heed God's warning. 
He didn't heed God's warning. And he rose up and he murdered his brother. And God said to Cain in Genesis 4, 10-11, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The ground cries to me. It screams to me about the blood that it has absorbed, the righteous blood of your brother. And why did Cain murder his brother? We don't have to guess. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3. He says this. We should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the evil one. And slew his brother. Who's in the same righteous line of those who have gone before. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. In other words. He was angry and jealous of his brother's righteousness. By his brother's righteousness, his own guilt and wickedness were then exposed. And so he hated him and he had to kill them. You see the theme? This is exactly why these leaders of the nation hated Christ. And exactly why they turned him over to be crucified by the Roman governor, Pilate. Chapter 27, verse 18 says this of Matthew. Speaking of Pilate, the he here. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Why did they kill him? Because of envy. They were jealous. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Cain was evil, and Abel was righteous. And he was jealous of that. This is how it works. And it's no different today, beloved. We don't have to be confused of why the righteous hate the wicked. He says, the Apostle John does in the very next verse, Do not be surprised, brethren, then, if the world hates you. Don't be shocked. The unrighteous have always hated the righteous. And it will always be to the end of the age. He then gives another example. To the blood of Zechariah, to the son of, ba- of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now this reference is a bit more difficult. The problem is this, which Zechariah is he referring to? Which Zechariah is he referring to? And here's the problem. There is a Zechariah mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, 20-21, who is Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, but who was also murdered, he was stoned to death in the temple area between the altars described here. He was in the 9th century, being at the end of Chronicles, meaning at the end of their history, and it would be one of the crimes committed that led, would ultimately lead to the judgment of the city of Jerusalem. And then there is a Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. We met him last week. That is the minor prophet whose prophecy we're reading now in our scripture reading. The problem is is that his death is not recorded for us. So the events in Zechariah of Jehoiada match what Christ is saying, but the name matches the minor prophet who was much later in the 6th century whose death is not recorded for us. So how do we resolve that? The two best options for understanding Jesus' statement are this. One, he is referring to Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, in 2 Chronicles 24, but Jehoiada was his grandfather. And therefore, the point would be this. The guilt from the first martyr Abel to the last one recorded in the books of history will also fall on you, and as their sin led to the destruction of Jerusalem, so yours will lead to the destruction of my people, this generation. 
The second, and what I think is probably correct, is he could be saying this, is that he's referring to Zechariah the minor prophet whose death was not recorded in Scripture, but was similar to the 9th century Zechariah and is mentioned here by Jesus, though it was not recorded in the canon. As one Old Testament scholar said, since there are about 25, 27 different individuals mentioned in the Old Testament bearing the name Zechariah, it is not surprising if two of them happen to suffer a similar fate. In other words, then this would be from Abel to Zechariah, the last canonical prophet, to be murdered by his own people. And thus completing the parallel from Abel, the first prophet to be murdered, to Zechariah the last. And the point is this, you are guilty of the blood and the murderous death of all the righteous slain by my apostate people because you stand in their line and will epitomize their wickedness and bring it to its climactic conclusion. To what it pointed to. These here are historically hearing his voice would be and are guilty of an even worse crime. The climax of every murder of the righteous Because they're going to kill the righteous one, their own God and Messiah. And this act then, they epitomize the wickedness that he's confronting here and the guilt that he is addressing. The same murderous heart, however, doesn't stop with them. It continues to the very end of the age, the wicked kingdom of the Antichrist, which will be against his people. And so it will even at that time vindicate the judgment that God is bringing upon the earth. Let me just read to you a couple of passages here. Don't turn there, just listen. Second Thessalonians. He's writing to a suffering people, the suffering church, and he says this. Your endurance in the midst of all of these afflictions is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who reflect, afflict you and give relief to you who are afflicted as to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus listen to his rebuke in revelation against that wicked city Babylon he says this and in her in verse 18:24 Revelation, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. In other words, she both epitomized that kind of wickedness and is going to bear the guilt and she did in fact enact the same kind of wickedness in killing the righteous. So Jesus says, all of that guilt is going to come on you. Because you stand in their line, you epitomize it, and you are going to commit the most grievous of all of the crimes that all of those things pointed to. And so he simply ends then with this statement in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So what are these things? It's the guilt and the judgment for killing God's people. It includes the judgment of eternal hell. He's already said that, but it also includes another judgment that we'll look at next week, that he's going to bring the judgment of the temple, the destruction of the people in the land. Who is this generation? Well, the most immediate reference, again, is to that historical generation, the generation that would be guilty of the specific sin of rejecting and murdering the Son of God, putting to death their own Savior and Messiah. They are the ones who actually, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, crucified the Lord of glory. 
And the sheer magnitude of this sin, at least for the Gentiles involved, but also certainly including the Jews, maybe primarily the Jews, may be why Christ prayed on the cross in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The magnitude of the sin that was going to be committed was probably what led him to say those words. Don't hold that sin against them. Don't hold that sin against them. Even so, their guilt will bring upon them the destruction of the temple, as we already mentioned, and the suffering of the nation. It was coming. It's coming. And again, lest anyone think this is unfair, remember also that the guilt of his people fell upon Christ himself. 1 Peter 3, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. As we prepare our hearts then to come into the Lord's table, let me make these two applications of this. Two things for us to consider. The first is this. The cross then shows the depth of man's sin and the righteousness of God's judgment. The cross shows the depths of man's sin and the righteousness of God's judgment. How spiritually blind is fallen man? How deep do the lust and the corruptions of our heart go? What is the reality of the enmity that the fallen heart actually has against God and against true holiness and true righteousness? How much disparity can there be between somebody who is outwardly religious and the remaining corruptions in their heart? Well, the cross shows us that. That's how much. How much that the leaders of Israel could have an impeccable outward life and yet have so much hatred against their God that they kill Him. That's how much. How much does humanity truly hate true holiness? Well, the cross tells us. Because even if we might say or someone might say, I would not have done that. I wasn't there. I would have done differently. Guess what? You're saying the same things they did. We wouldn't have done that, but in fact we would have. Why? Because our sin is that corrupting. It's that deep. It's that damning. And it's that destructive. So the ultimate expression of the depth of man's sin and the righteousness of God's judgment is the death of his own son on the cross. Not the murder of the righteous like Abel and Zechariah and the others. That, that definitely shows it. But it is at the cross where God himself is there and he was killed, that our sin is most fully exposed. And beloved, that is for all who are outside of God's salvation. And had God not done something deliberate and intentional and solely as an act of his kindness and his goodness, in your heart, if you know him, you would be there too, as would I. We like to think as fallen man that there's some good in us. We look at outward deeds and we see kind deeds and we think, well, we're really not that bad. We're really not that bad. And we can be quick to accuse God when evil happens and when such severe destruction comes and we somehow have this idea that God should only bless us. But the cross argues otherwise. If you want to grasp how deep your sin goes and the sin of man and the darkness of this world, look at the cross. And if you want to see the righteousness of God's judgment that's coming upon the world, look at the cross. Because the cross also says that God will uphold His justice at all cost. 
There will be no bending in the justice of God. There will be no escape. There will be no loose ends. There will be no willy-nilly application of the justice of God. He will uphold it, and he will uphold it is proven by the fact that he can only be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because he killed him in behalf of sinners. Secondly, then, it shows this. First, it shows the depth of man's sin and the righteousness of God's judgment. Secondly, it shows the cross does the depth of God's grace and the willingness to forgive sinners. This is the greatest display of man's sin and the greatest display of God's grace where Christ is heading. Yes, he warns of judgment. Yes, it is true. It's coming. But he's also going to accomplish the salvation of men. Very few from the Pharisaical party, as far as we know, would be saved. Nicodemus is one. Paul is one. Most would be rejected. But the gospel would go out and people would get saved. And Paul himself stands, he stands as a trophy of the mercy of God that it is not beyond anybody. It's not beyond any sinner. 1 Timothy 1. He says, I'm, I'm held out as an example because I persecuted the church of God. I lived that unrighteous life masked over by false veneer of religion. And yet God's mercy reached even to me so that no sinner would say, God's mercy isn't enough for me. I've sinned too much. I've heard that. You've heard that. That's a lie. That really turns out just to be an excuse to hold on to sin and not repent. The fact is God's mercy does reach that deep and the death of Christ proves it. God would that all would be saved though he has ordained that they won't. I pray that that's not true for any of us here And what a time to examine our hearts and to worship him when we come into his table. What a time to examine, do I love this one who was crucified for me? What evidence do I see that I'm not like those leaders? What evidence do I see that Christ has indeed changed my heart? If you hate sin and you're trusting only in Christ, rejoice. You have no righteousness that you bring to the table, nor do I. You bring only your sin. It is Christ's righteousness that we rest in. It is Christ's death, Christ's life, Christ's resurrection by which we are covered and brought near to God. And we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate His salvation, His shed blood for us. And we want to rejoice in it. And in our rejoicing, the other part of what Peter said is He Himself bore our sin in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we commit ourselves to Him afresh and anew. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, we do ask you that you would make clear to us in a new and a fresh way by your Spirit the glories of the cross, the glories of salvation, the glories of redemption, the reality of the hope that we have through the resurrection of the Son, the reality of his return, the reality of his kingdom on earth, the reality of his, the new heavens and the new earth as we read where his glory and your glory lights all of eternity. Help us to have a heart that anticipates that even as we remember in this sign that you have given to us and your token of your grace that we share in this morning. Commit our time to you. May you receive our worship. Amen.